Want to cut cooling bills without cutting comfort? Lower utility costs and enjoy cool and consistent comfort with a highly efficient air conditioner from Luxair. With Luxair's consumer rebate program, educators, nurses, first responders, military personnel, and veterans can enjoy exclusive rebates on qualifying purchases of Luxair equipment. To learn more, call G-Team Mechanical at 765-376-3042 or visit gteamhvac.com. They'll recommend a system tailored to your home that provides comfort, energy savings, and lasting performance. This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. This is the 2024 Rolex 24 at Daytona. We see the green and Durrani is flying already. Up further ahead, the number seven Porsche Penske is going to beat him out. The seven beats the 31. It's going to be tight looking at the clock, guys. Really tight. Checker. Checker flag. The Rolex 24 is won. Porsche Penske Motorsport for the first time since 1969. The captain squad has done it. And that came as a surprise because race control only announced at the last second the checker was coming out. Wow. And look, even the drivers were caught out by that. They're like, did we win? You sure did. And all four drivers at Porsche Penske Motorsport are first time overall Rolex 24 winners. You've won the Indy 500, and you've won the biggest sports car race in America. Look, I I just showed up. That's all I did. (laughs) I I don't know what to say. You know, Porsche and Team Penske, they they delivered the biggest result. Um, But, you know, Felipe, the way he drove at the end, Matt Campbell, these guys won this race. I mean, I was just happy to be here. Um, What an unbelievable group, though. You know, they're going to cherish this for a long time. you got to talk to RP, though. I think he was crying up there on the fifth stand. Yeah, when you think about 1969, we went here with a Lola. Things were a lot different in those days. But just to think about today, the biggest crowd they've had here for a sports car race, my hat's off to him, obviously, for Porsche to give us the equipment. But the drivers, and at the end there with Felipe, but just to see the competitiveness and six or seven tenths of a second was a difference after 24 hours. It's unbelievable. Hard to say. Welcome to Trackside on 93.5, 107.5, The Fan in Indianapolis. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Good to be back home again in Indiana. Highlights from the 62nd Rolex 24 from Daytona, Saturday and Sunday over the weekend. Courtesy of NBC Sports, and then you heard from... Guys who had a pretty good year or so. Joseph Newgarden and a guy who's had a pretty good half century plus. Roger Penske (laughs) winning for the first time in 55 years overall in the Rolex 24. Thank you for being with us tonight. That means we're getting even closer to race season. NASCAR starts this weekend with the clash in Los Angeles. We'll get into a lot of things tonight on the program. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan, Landon Coons is in our studio tonight. Um... Once again, an IndyCar driver is a part of the overall winning lineup. That's the sixth straight year that an IndyCar driver, this time around it's Joseph Newgarden, the one with the Porsche Penske team, has been a part of the overall winner. Just I'm not talking in class, like Christian Rasmussen uh, was super impressive in LMP2 and finished up their win there. And I think almost every year someone wins at least in class Overall, And by the way, that's including if you count Fernando Alonso as an IndyCar driver in 2019, which I think you can because he was licensed as an IndyCar driver. He just wasn't good enough to bump and beat out Kyle Kaiser and Hunkos 
in the uh, Indy 500. He got bumped in the Indy 500. So that's where we have that. Six straight year. They also had a run from 11 through 15 with overall winners that were IndyCar active drivers. Did you see me all of a sudden getting out, you know, my fingers to count up the number of years and looking up real quickly on the results because I wasn't willing to give you Fernando Alonso, at least at first blush. But since then, uh, I would agree with you. We've had Pagino, we've had Castroneves, uh, we've certainly had uh, Rossi in there a little bit yep. before that, and and uh, and then we've got Joseph Newgarden. So we may be missing somebody, maybe somebody else. But I think he's the seventeenth Indianapolis five hundred winner to go to victory lane in the endurance race at Daytona, which is pretty hefty company. And I think I counted like ten of those have happened in the last. 19 years so it's happened with with great frequency here lately um you know everybody from jpm montoya to castroneves and dixon and weldon and rossi you've had uh, a, a great representation here and there are others a, a great representation here in the last 20 years from the indycar side and five in a row uh, that I'm willing to give you, I'll give you Fernando, but but uh, he didn't make the race that year and wasn't in an Indy car that year. But I he wasn't in Indy car. He just oh, that's was right. not in an Indy car race. <laughs> fair enough, fair point. We can get to the technicalities of that, uh, but 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 all good. A good twenty. What was that? A twenty-three hour and fifty-nine minute race? Do you do you actually get to celebrate uh, a Rolex twenty-four? They uh, they inadvertently threw the checkered flag, and it was confusing on all fronts. Um, let's let's just start there just a minute. I I noticed that uh, our guy Joseph, uh, you know, who is reserved at the right times of the day, and and certainly has his game face on when he's uh, in competition. They throw the checkered flag and there's confusion, it seems, or at least there doesn't seem to be a reaction from Team Penske. You're right in the thick of it. What happened? So I'm in the, the Team Penske tent. I went in there because the goal was if Roger came down, if, if you watch the Rolex at all, he has kind of a little perch right above the pit lane. And if he came down and it cleared out enough, I was going to try to interview him. We knew that was a long shot because... You know, all, all honesty, I'm pretty respectful of someone that's 86 years old that I'm not going to ambush him in a massive crowd. I kind of wanted to be settled. So I didn't think it was going to happen, but it was close enough to victory lane where I knew I could get there, so I'd be standing by. So we were, we're watching on the monitor, and the clock has gone away at that point, and it just says two laps left. And all of a sudden you hear, and they can't hear. I, I can hear, and I hear uh, Diff say, checkered flag, that's it. And there's no reaction in the tent because they're watching the same monitor I am. And since I've learned, you know, that Tim Sendrick is on the radio with Felipe Nazar, who was in the car at the time saying, keep going. You know, obviously that's until you're hundred percent certain. I don't care if the checkered waved or not, do not lift, keep racing. And so everybody's looking at me after you see that quick shot of the drivers, just, looking normal because they don't know that anything is different and they are, there are other media people in there too. And they are listening to the broadcast and they're then asking me, is it over? Is it over? So I'm asking in my headset, is it over? And I hear, I think so. And my response was think is not going to be good enough because I'm going to tell the room here. I need to know for certain if it's over. And then 20 seconds or so more, 
And then I get the, yep, it, it's over. You can tell everybody. And then that's when they come back to them and you see them celebrating. So my first guess was, uh, and IMSA, by the way, let's just start with this. Uh, they credit to them. They're not trying to cover this up. They're not trying to come up with an excuse. It's basically, they sent out a statement today saying, oops, Oops. Uh, due to an officiating error in race control, IMSA inadvertently announced and sub subsequently displayed the white flag with under three minutes remaining in the race. At the end of the lap, the race leading number seven GTP car then received a checkered flag with one minute, 35.277 seconds still remaining, ending the race short of the plan 24 hours by effectively one lap. And then it states the rule and the regulations, which I saw last night, this people posted. It essentially says if we inadvertently throw the checkered flag, there's no recourse. The race is over. You race to the checker and this happens. I have been a spotter. Uh, in races where Jackson is racing, where there's no white flag. And they just decide, you know what? We've had enough. The checkered's going to come out this time. So there, there's no guarantee in timed races that you get to see a white flag. It's And part of the, the, the challenge in this, and I suspect part of the confusion, was how close it was. So they decide when to throw the white flag based on how long a lap takes. And in that class, and you, you base it on the top class. So you race to 24 hours. Uh, and the first time you cross the line at 24.00 or more, the race is over. So then you got to back time it. And then it's, okay, a lap is 136, something like that, 137, 138. So then... We're going to anything, help me with math here, 58, 42-ish or less. I may be wrong on that. No, 58, 22-ish or less. We need to throw the white flag. And it was real close. Uh, and at the time, I think Calvin Fish even mentioned on the air, I'm not sure if this is going to be three or two laps. So they do that. And then there was probably a little bit of traffic because that next lap ended up being about a minute 40. So then it's, uh-oh, they're going to cross the line when we're planning on giving them the white flag at like 2401. Well, that's not great. Somebody's going to complain about that as well. And I wondered if the flag man was told very quickly with like seven seconds notice, white flag, white flag, and he grabbed the wrong flag. I don't know. That's not what's said in the statement. I did not. I went back and looked at the broadcast, and when Nasser in the seven Porsche Penske went by for what ultimately was the last lap, I didn't see any flag being waved. So maybe shortly after that, a white flag came out when we're not showing the flag stand. So one credit to Townsend and Hint, uh, Townsend and, and Diff that were looking at their monitor closely enough and saw the checkered coming out and were able to call the finish of a really historic and significant moment. Roger Penske winning overall for the first time since 1969 at the Rolex. So it's not ideal. Luckily, it almost certainly did not change the outcome. All four, all four classes. Uh, there was nobody that I'm aware of in any fuel or energy concern. And there wasn't really a challenge. I don't believe in any of the classes for the win. So um, mistakes happen, as they like to say. It is what it is, and they owned up to it. And it does not detract from what was 
really, this is not just someone that's working on the event. It was better than ever. It was, I'm not, I don't have the history that other people have. I've been watching it for 25 years. I've been there for six. It far exceeded any of the, the six that I've been to. Yeah, the weather was good, which which is helpful. We've talked mm-hmm. about this before on the show, and I wasn't on site this time, but I've been to three probably, and there can be some some of the coldest nights of my life have been at the Rolex in the middle of the night or 11 or 12 o'clock when you think it ought to be Florida sunshine or at least Florida temperatures. So it was better weather this year. That helped. It was very compelling stuff. And I agree. It didn't change the outcome. It certainly didn't change the outcome on classes two, three, and four. Uh, in in class, you know, top class, it certainly, there could have been some drama on the last lap, but Felipe Nasser had it pretty well in hand and, and had so for quite some time, several laps prior. Got a hand at Tom Blumquist. We're going to talk about some IndyCar drivers that did exceptionally well. And uh, I'll actually pose to you a, a question that uh, that I think is relevant about the IndyCar guys here in just a little bit. But I also w- would like to kind of start with, I mean, certainly you've hit on the Roger Penske element, you know, not winning uh, there for better than 50 years is a tremendous story. Just the whole process of of the Porsche going to victory lane and, and all that comes with that. But let's start with Newgarden. We mentioned 17 now Indy 500 winners who have gone uh, to victory lane, and he's, I think, one of five who have done so as a reigning Indy 500 winner. Leyendike did it. Um, Castro Neves did it. Uh, Dixon did it. Um, I, I don't know if the list I have doesn't have Dixon. Has you're Darnold. right. You're right. Right. His he won in in '06 and then uh, didn't win again until like '13 or '14 or '15, maybe '15. So Dixon came later. I can't remember who the other ones were. Weldon. In Weldon. 06, that's right. With, I had the right year with Dixon and Casey Mears, and I forget who the fourth was. So um, that yeah, that was um, relevant, but but then. What I took from Joseph, and and I I know that you will help explain this, and I think we all understand he's he's technically the fourth wheel in that that machine. I mean he's not he's not the lead driver, he's not a regular driver, he's he's the all star in the show, but you know all star in name, if you will. But he he looked, and the word I'm going to use from from afar is he, he almost looked apologetic. Like, I didn't really deserve to be up here on the stage with these guys. And if you watch his mannerisms, he deferred much more than, I mean, I remember Rossi was kind of that way. And I understand their respectfulness of the moment, but he he seemed to kind of slide a little further out of the spotlight than than even I might have expected. I'm sure you got that impression as well. More than that impression. Uh, so I'll give you a little inside uh, information uh, of how his approach was and a little bit of our approach. So, and this is kind of directed to the hardcore sports car fans that I suspect get a little bit annoyed with the way we do the broadcast, not focusing on the full-time sports car drivers. And we spend so much time talking about fourth drivers, third drivers. We're talking about the IndyCar people and Chase Elliott was there. It was all about him and uh, things like that. And, I get the annoyance, but part of the idea is, and this is going from people and coming from people 
way smarter than I am about how to try to hold an audience. And this also, I think there are two different presentations. There's the NBC show. There's really three, the USA show and the Peacock show. Peacock show, we know those are hardcore sports car fans, and it is free reign. Go inside, talk about balance of performance, talk about the season championship, interview the third driver on the GTD program, whatever you want to do. But the mandate, which I agree with because we're trying to help grow the sport uh, and bring new people in and get people to stay that that don't know who some of these other regulars are, and maybe they'll get to know them, but it's sell the stars. And people know what the Indy 500 is. So right or wrong, that's what we're talking about. And that's why in my open to both of the NBC shows, and I'm I'm going to guess this annoyed Joseph, if he was watching it, that I'm talking about him and, and not his teammates. Um, so late in the race, I was asked, First, he was invited to come to the pit box again, and he he declined. And I get that. Uh, and even if he wants to deflect, a lot of drivers, you know, you don't want to jinx it. You, you're you're in contention for the win. Plus, you want to be there with your teammates the whole time, even if you're done. And then they said, "Can you go get him inside the tent?" This is with under an hour or so to go. And I said, "I know Joseph pretty well." I don't think he's going to want to do that. I think he's going to decline because of the things that you said. And I also think kind of because of the attention that Elio got and somewhat took when, when he won the championship two years ago and last year, and this is not a criticism at all of Elio because we kind of egg that on a, a little bit, but I don't think he wants to be seen because in the sports car community and his teammates, will rib Elio about, you know, how he took them to victory. And, but it was all about Elio. And like I said, last week, I didn't even get to talk to Colin Brown uh, because Elio's interview went way too long. So I knew Joseph was going to feel that way. So I presented it to them this way. I said, how about all three teammates were there together? How about I present it to them where I will ask each of them a question, Matt Campbell, Dane Cameron, and Joseph walk up to him, Matt, you okay. If I ask each of you a question, yep. Dane, yep. Joseph, Kevin, I'd really rather not. I'd really rather not. So, okay. Uh, And that's it. And we were going to come back and talk to him, but then the pit stop was coming. And then it was more me. They asked, should we do this again? And I was reluctant. I don't want to be in their tent with 25 minutes. I feel like that's like the broadcaster's jinx. I really didn't want to talk to someone on the team at that point. There's no relevant question. It wasn't, are you going to make it on fuel? It's just, Hey, can you hold him off? Uh, so we had enough action on track. We didn't need to go back to it. So that's definitely it. And I don't blame Joseph at all because he is the interloper. He's trying to be respectful. Uh, and don't get me wrong. He loved being a part of this and he is super appreciative and it is very, very important to him, but he wanted to, Stay in his lane. Stay in his place. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was obvious from his body language. Now, like you, I know him very well uh, since even before he arrived in the NTT IndyCar series. So I have been around him a lot. I know his his mantra, if you will. I know how he reacts to almost every request. I can predict how Joseph is going to react, good and bad, because we know Joseph. Joseph is not difficult to read. You know 
All you got to do is spend a little time with Joseph and you know what things he'll accept and what things he won't. And so, yeah, anyway, his body language on the podium, uh, as you were uh, trying to talk to the the other sports car drivers or the sports car drivers, and you never really got to Nasser because Nasser was in the midst of a, a big celebration. I assume I that was... I did get to him, but five words in, I I, I think that might have been his dad, but I, I, I don't thought know it was his was. dad. Yeah, but I, like... I don't know him. I know him fairly well, but I don't know his family. And I never got back to him to ask anyone about that. Uh, but I, I also think that told the story. Yeah. You know, that, that emotion, that really no more words were needed at that point. That tells you, this is a guy that drove in Formula One, that's won this race in class before, he's won championships. Uh, I'm not going to say it's the Indy 500. I'm not going to say it's Le Mans. I saw this on social media recently. What would you rather win, Le Mans or the Indy 500? Well, one, it depends on where you're from. But I still think even a European-based driver, drivers are meant to be selfish. You want to win the one where you're the only one. Now, a yeah. team is a different story. If you're a team or a manufacturer, I get it, especially if you're European-based, that it might be Le Mans. But if you're a driver to be the one, it's got to be the Indy 500, but a separate story. Um, in Dane Cameron, that was genuine. Dane Cameron, he is one of those guys. That I'm glad we had time to talk to everyone because that's what that event is for. Dane Cameron is a superstar sports car driver. He's good enough to be an Indy car driver. The opportunity came in sports cars and he's made a career out of it. And, you know, now he's, he's won his Indy 500 now. Yeah, that was cool. I I do appreciate Dane's story and, and was so happy for him. And as I look through the field, I mean, there are others that you just are glad and, and some that I had forgotten that one that had won, had won the event because sometimes, as you mentioned in the Elio years, Elio maybe got a little more credit than a Colin Brown, for example, that's the first time Colin had won the overall title as well. You know, he had been in good cars, but they were in class, not, not the top class. So guys like that, really, it's it's so good to see. Um, so anyway, Joseph Joseph did pretty much what I expected. He kind of, you know, hung in the back and kind of tried to stay out of the photograph or outside the camera shot just a little bit. Just try to don't look at me too much. And uh, but he celebrated. But he I did celebrate. Po- I posted the picture from the the broadcast that we caught with the high camera when Nasser was pulling in and it's a primal scream from Joseph celebrating. Oh yeah. The other thing I would say that just as a inside inside the broadcast booth, so to speak, moment, as you're trying to talk to Nasser and Nasser now has decided he's gonna go all family on him and and celebrate. Uh I did notice that you were looking around trying to find Roger. Uh, trying to where, find Roger. Where did Roger and, go? And they're in my ear. Can you get Roger? And 10 seconds before he had been within reach and then he walked all the way around the other area. And that's the other challenge. I would have loved to have waited, but we have a very, very tight post-race show. And there have been years where we don't get to talk to one of the winners. And I didn't want to be the cause of that, where we don't get to talk to the GTD winner or the P2 winner because we lingered too long in, in victory lane there. Uh, So yeah, then it was okay over somebody else. And then we'll come back. And then, yeah, we could have gone back to Felipe, but I think we all felt like 
No, that was it. We got his yeah, emotion. You did. Don't need to ask. We know what it means. You know, the thing is, uh, and I thought this, as you described, Roger had walked around. You know what I think Roger probably did first? And he thanked the people that supported them. You know, he he would have stopped and and gave a pat on the back to the mechanics who he saw first and the sure. sponsors that were there. You know, he is the phrase I'm going to use, he cleans up business really well. He made sure he didn't go to the drivers who did all the work. You know, we have a couple IndyCar team owners that, that go right to the drivers and like to celebrate with them, but I don't think that's what Roger does. I haven't watched him specifically, but he goes to the people that, I don't want to say the people that matter because they all matter, but he doesn't forget that everybody that helps put that program together. And he probably, if there was a Porsche official there, he went right to them first or very quickly, he would have gone to his chief mechanic. He would have, he would have touched the people that didn't make the camera. And the drivers had already gone directly to Roger. So yeah. when that celebration in the tent erupted, they all climbed up the steps. They were going up there to just so, to congratulate Roger and just I'm sure thank him and just spend a moment with him and Cindric's up there Jonathan Duguid uh who who runs that program is up there as well so you just think about you think about him at 86 years old and you know he sat on that pit box a long time I don't know how long he spent of the 24 hours but I bet he was there most of the night or at least a lot of the night and uh, just to be involved at 86 and in the last calendar year have won a cup championship an Indy 500 and and the Rolex just to just a magnificent year for the man. I know he's done everything in motorsports, and sometimes you wonder, could he do anything else with his organization uh, to further cement uh, the legacy that will never be duplicated across motorsports? And once again, he's done something else, you know, sweeping these three big titles in the same year. Unbelievable. Uh, let's do a quick update on how some of the IndyCar drivers did in the race in case you didn't see it i won't go through all of it but colton herta was a part of the team that finished on the podium the wayne taylor andretti team they were a little bit down on pace so podium was the best that they could do they finished third jensen button it was a part of that program as well along with jordan taylor the ganassi car one of our picks might have been the pick they were gonna be there the cadillac was really strong the 31 by the way finished second that's Tom Blumquist, another IndyCar driver who continues to be a sports car star, fastest lap of the race. He was awesome. And he's not their full-time driver, but he finished in part because Pippo Durrani did uh, like two quadruple stints and he was worn out. When I talked to him on Saturday night, uh, when he got out of the car, they took him back to the transporter without letting him speak to anyone, even debrief. And it did not look like he was doing great. I think they took him back there and gave him an IV or something. Then he came out and, you know, he started with, I feel fine. And then, you know, I asked him really, how are you doing? He's I'm pretty spent. I'm, I'm pretty whipped right now. That was a quadruple stint. And then he did the same thing on Sunday. And he said, I can finish if I need to, but I'd really prefer that Tom finish it because I'm not sure I'm a hundred percent right now. Uh, who else? Oh, the Ganassi, the one they had, they had mechanical issues. They were going to be right there. That's the car with Bourdais and Dixon and Pillow. They were super fast. They were going to be in the mix. All the LMP2 IndyCar drivers, Pato Awards car had a problem somewhere overnight. Felix Rosenquist car was never really in contention. Um, Rasmussen was great. They won 
Colin Brown had the fastest race lap who we had on the show last week in LMP two. He was, he finished second on his team. Pietro Fittipaldi got called up off the couch on Friday night. So one of their drivers, one of their pro drivers got hurt in pit stop practice on Friday and nothing. He was at the race. I didn't see him, nothing debilitating, but not able to go in the race. So they called Pietro and he made his way there at 3 a.m. Saturday or something like that and and did well in their car. So Pietro Fittipaldi was part of the fourth place program. Scott McLaughlin looked good. They were running fourth and fifth a lot of the race. They finished in fifth. Uh, Who else? Kyle Kirkwood's car got crashed at the beginning. Some, uh, Some LMP2 cars. That's where the more gentleman drivers. Every one of those cars has to have a bronze driver, which means a very amateur driving driver, and they all commence to run into each other and spin and crash a lot. And, uh, you know, you see the insurance commercial, the chaos guy, mayhem, the mayhem guy. He was in an LMP2 car, and they spun in front of Mike Conway and destroyed that car. The 12-Vassar Sullivan car done blowed up on Sunday. Massive fire. Parker Thompson got out. Jimmy Vassar, when he climbed down, said something like, that's a great Canadian because he got in there with the fire extinguisher. If you don't know Parker, Parker was uh, almost one USF 2000 and, and star Mazda or whatever it was called at the time championships and is a really good sports car driver. And he got in there with the extinguisher in the middle of it two or three times and saved that car from burning to the ground and probably saved Jimmy Vassar and, and Sully several hundred thousand dollars, uh, but they were in contention to be able to win. The Lexus cars were really good. Uh, who else am I forgetting? Well, you in mentioned Rasmussen. Did you, you there's, got, there's like 17 of them that were in the race. So my question to you, and, and I th- it's going to be our question of the week in the round table on IndyCar.com this week. And there, there are really three answers in my book. So who had among those IndyCar guys who comes away with that, with the most, to hang their hat on which, which driver had the best 24 hour race in your opinion? I mean, maybe with deeper thought, I'll come up with a better one, but it's Kristen Rasmussen. So I think Rasmussen is probably the answer. Uh, I think given that Joseph cemented his place among Indy 500 winners that have done this in victory lane, that's pretty impressive. I'm going to let you get back to Rasmussen for just a second, but, but that's, you know, those two guys both had, uh, had really big uh, weekends and, and it's not as if, Tom Blumquist needed it, but man, he's going to carry some mojo into the season. Now he goes in and, and does what he does in a sports car. He's going to come, come bouncing into the season. Good for him. He had a really good 24 hour race, but I'll let you expand a little bit more on Rasmussen. Uh, I, I would say yes, Tom continues some momentum, but everyone in the sport knew what he was in a sports car. This is the third straight year. He's been, if not the best, really close to the best in this race. So, yep. um, and for New Garden, from a legacy standpoint and a brand, yeah, yeah, that's the one. Because, you know, now he's an IndyCar champion. This is one of those things that, just like if you're an Indy 500 winner, if you're a race car driver, even if you're Joseph Newgarden, in 20 years, when if if he chooses to do this, and I don't think he will, but if he does and starts going to the dinner banquet circuit, and is willing to do those kind of things when he's introduced 
He's going to be introduced as an Indy 500 winner, champion, and Rolex 24 winner. That's going to be, it sort of depends on the crowd you're at, but if he goes to the RRDC dinner or when he's inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame, which he will be, that will be on the short list. Rolex 24 winner. Um, you know, did he do anything to change? I'm sure he still has some things to learn. You can look at lap times. His lap times weren't anywhere close to the others. I say that with a caveat, though, in that you've got to really be watching to know. Because sometimes you just don't get clean laps. So yeah. I've got a chart that shows fastest laps of the race and the weekend. But that doesn't tell the whole story because you might be dealing with traffic. If your time in the car is when it's really hot and somebody else is out there at 10 p.m. at night, it's going to be a little bit faster. Did you have to run double stints? Which is if you're in the nighttime, you're running used tires. They're giving you right side one time, left side another time. You probably never, never run on a sticker set. The guys that do the last four hours are running on sticker sets every time. And the other is Joseph Newgarden's job and others in his situation. Their job is not to put down the fastest lap. It doesn't matter where they're at. If they want to pass you, let them pass you. You just need to stay on the first on the lead lap. Ideally, if you're just somewhere in the mix, you know, if you're within 15, 20 seconds of the lead, it's fine with 12 hours to go, eight hours to go, because you know there's going to be a caution that's going to bunch them all up again. Um, but Rasmussen, we knew he was fast, but he had to finish. He had to finish, and he had people to race with that are really talented all the way around. And I I got to believe this gives him a little bit of confidence. He, he had to have confidence. You don't win championships at all three levels by the way when you have to he didn't have to win this race he had to win those championships but this is him producing as his job he's a gold-rated driver meaning it is hard for those drivers to find jobs because there's plenty of gold-rated drivers he got paid for this race he delivered he's going to continue to get paid to do these races and he's going to, I think he's going to show well this season whether or not he scores a top five or top 10 finish or a podium or anything like that. He's going to show well and his future is bright. And I was happy for him. Yep. Uh, crowd was big. So I looked up to, right before the race was starting, right before we went on the air. And this is normally an infield crowd. And, and the reason I bring this up on this and IndyCar show, I just feel like there's momentum in motorsports right now. I think it all parallels, you know, is it drive to survive driven, whatever, um, but I, I think people are finding that motorsports has value. They like to go to events. They like to watch on television. And this is normally about the infield and the grid, which is open to fans. Nope. Special pass needed is always packed. So I can't say if it was more packed or not, but what struck me along with how hard it was to get around in the infield and how many people were out there throughout the infield is I looked up in the stands it's normally kind of friends and family. And it looked like a regular race from start finish line to oval turn one. It was, I would say legitimately 60% filled. You know, you saw some of the shots on we have, we do great angles on television that make it look like it's packed. I'm not going to tell you it was packed, but normally it's probably 
10 to 15%. This was a legit 60%. There might have been 15, 20,000 people in the grandstands. I, I may be way off on that. Maybe it's 35 because the seats hold about 101,000, I think. That's what the Daytona 500 seating capacity is. So I'm kind of basing it on that. But it, it was just the best that we've seen. And that was the reaction from other people, too. So a lot of fun. All right. Uh, coming up, we'll tell you what we know about the Brad Pitt movie. Uh, from what we got on and off the air from Jerry Bruckheimer and more. Got an IndyCar thought with hybrid testing coming up this week and how I'm getting, I'm feeling a little bit better if it ever comes to fruition that everybody's basically running the same engine and and how it can really become a positive to everyone involved. We'll, we'll get into that and more coming up on Trackside. Hi, this is Joseph Newgarden, and you're listening to Trackside. Thanks for staying with us as we continue. Trackside, 93.5-1075, the fan in Indianapolis. Um, Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan. I saw the back of Brad Pitt's head last (laughs) week. I saw the back of his head about three times over the weekend, and I was not, you know, I think if I would have stopped, I could have walked around, but I was always on my way somewhere, and I was trying not to be a stalker. And then at some point on Saturday, I looked over and he was about four feet from me. And I don't know if they were in the middle of filming because they were doing stuff in that tent. So for those that don't know, they're, they're making a formula one movie. And the premise is he's either made it to formula one early in his career or came up short and had a full career in something else. And Jerry Bruckheimer, who directed what top gun and days of thunder and many, many things, He was in the booth on the air with the guys and he told the guys uh, on the headset. So I think this is fair game because it's over a a microphone that anyone with a scanner is listening to. He said the original premise in the script was the Brad Pitt character was going to be a rally driver, like doing Dakar and the Baja 1000 and go straight from there to Formula One. And when Lewis Hamilton got involved, he said, no. No, no, no one is doing rally driving and going straight to Formula One. We got to put him in sports cars. And I think you could probably argue you'd probably put him in the prototype class, but it probably was a little easier to come up with enough cars because there's not a lot of prototypes available, but we can find some GT3 cars. So that's that's how they did it. And the premise is that he's, you know, in his probably mid 40s, even though he's 60, but he does look like he's 40 years old up close, up close as well. Um, that he's doing this and then gets recruited to, you know, help mentor a young driver. It's it's driven all over and we'll we'll see how they go with it. But when I walk by, he's panting and he's just soaked in sweat. And I think it was them shooting a scene of he had just gotten out of the car. And then later I walked by and I saw Pat Long doing the same thing. Pat's a real race car driver, but is his teammate in the movie. And Pat was sitting up on the stand, soaked in sweat, you know, debriefing after a stint. Pace car crashed. I don't know if that was part of the movie or if just the pace car crashed. That was on Saturday morning at around 10 a.m. and it crashed hard. Uh, so, you know, that was one thought. Well, maybe that was something because they were they were shooting scenes throughout the weekend, late at night. Uh, they were there for a week and a half or so. So that was cool. So we'll look and see how that goes. I guess they shot a lot of stuff from Real Victory Lane that's going to make its way 
into the movie. So I'll be looking forward to my residuals if I yeah. know the back of my head makes it in there anywhere. Your residuals, you looking yeah, around for good. Roger Penske. That'll be what they show. <laughs> hey, where's Roger? Where's Roger? Where's Roger, where's Roger Rabbit? He's on the other side. Yep, yep, yep. IndyCar testing. You brought that up and teased it a little bit. I want to get to that before we get out of the show tonight. Let's get to yep. what we know there. So I know, uh, I don't know who's testing, but several drivers mentioned to me that they are testing the hybrid. So they were at Homestead last week and basically each team had one car and they were sharing it and the Andretti cars were all really quick. The general consensus I got from every driver was, yeah, it's fun to be in the car, but it really doesn't do anything. You know, you get three laps on tires at Homestead. It just chews up tires, but it was the only option. And for young drivers, like Nolan Siegel spoke to him. He had a great time. I don't think his plan has changed. You know, I don't think Nolan is a candidate. Um, I think if I suspect if he was given the choice, would you do IndyCar right now? He might do it, but he's got smart people around him that are telling him, hang on, let's you're 19 years old. Let's go for the Indy next championship this year. It was good to just test the car and we're going to work on a 25 program. So I think that's still the plan for him. Um, you know, there were other young drivers that uh, really felt like it was beneficial to get a chance to do it. So that really helps them. And then several said, yeah, we're going to be back at Homestead this week uh, testing the hybrid car. So that's a positive because what I'm hearing, you know, I've wondered before, hey, how are they going to have this ready after right after the Indy 500? There's no timetable. I don't know if it's Detroit, Road America, whatever. I wondered if maybe it's after the summer break. But the fact that they're starting to do something now does lead me to believe there is a chance. And and they, a lot of this needs to get done before the season starts because it will be difficult to do this after the season starts. Um, but I'm told there is a plan. I'm not privy to what the schedule is for that. And then a secondary thought, you know, going back to December, we remember the story of, of the quotes from, uh, Chuck Shivsky, one of the executives at Honda, saying, "Yeah, we need to see a little better return on investment if we're going to stay in on this." And that was pretty much a big bombshell that I think had been shared privately, but not shared publicly. And then later, Chuck told Racer.com, "Here's an idea that we're kind of floating around that it might help recruit another manufacturer if we're." basically all running Ilmores that we're just badging the engines that has happened before. And my first thought was, uh, I don't know if that's going to work for everybody, but more, I think about it, a couple of things that really would make it, it, it basically sellable to all the fans and make it work for everybody involved. So we don't have the ability to, even if you have budget to get in the Indy 500 right now, beyond a certain level, because the engine manufacturers are losing money with each engine lease. So they're not super inclined to knock out one of their other engine partners with a part-time program. So you're going to be locked in. I do think 36 is a possibility, but you could get to even more. So if the cost comes down on these and it's all the same extensively, I think you have a better chance of if there is a budget and qualified drivers for 38, 39 cars or whatever, I think it's easier to add more cars to the Indy 500, does that make sense? It does, and I, and and okay. I think I think uh, I think there's a path to that. Now, whether or not we get to that path or continue on that path, but I but I it does make plausible sense to me. So that for whatever that's worth, 
here's the other thing and how fans would get excited. If you've brought the cost down to produce these engines and, and it's expensive because they're still competing, they're spending a lot of money just to find the little bits of improvement in handling in certain areas, whatever. If you get rid of that and it just needs to last, let's go ahead and turn up the horsepower a little bit or do something to make them scream. Let's make them scream a little bit more and do something that Formula One engines don't do right now. That's what you hear hardcores talk about. Let's bring the sexy back to IndyCar engines. And that the reason I've heard that doesn't happen is, well, you know, if you want to ramp up the RPMs, it's going to be a shorter rebuild time. They will not go whatever it is, 2,500 miles, yeah. if you turn up the horsepower and turn up the RPMs. But if you've reduced some of the cost out of it, maybe that is a little more possible. Um, I, 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 think, I think things are going well. I think, don't know, but I think hope that conversations are moving in the right direction where we're going to see something, and then that might be the path to present to a potential engine manufacturer that says, all right, this is plug and play. We're not going to be behind. We don't have to develop something and we're trying to catch up with them. It's the same as they have. And here's how they can kind of brand it their own. Maybe the hybrid technology is done by the manufacturers to some extent. And we talked about mapping and there's some other things that, that you can do to still make them uh, stand out a little bit more and help from their, their branding standpoint. Well, We've just solved all the world's problems. <laughs> we'll call that the trackside presentation. I'm sure Jay the, uh, Fry would be happy to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really been weighing on their minds, whether I approve or not. So <laughs> I presented that. Now we'll get some smart people involved to try to figure out all how this is going to work. Oh, one other thing I saw that applies to us. NASCAR says it will not require Kyle Larson to make the driver's meeting at Charlotte's. Beef help. So That'll that be helpful. Yeah, he's not isn't much of a hurry to get away from the Indy 500, so he does not lose his starting position. It's more important now because of stage points. So, you know, in the past, you could, it's only where you finish. Well, now if you start last, you're going to have a tough time scoring stage points. So they've gotten rid of that. So that's good. The two sides are playing together. Um, okay, we'll get to what we missed and more coming up in a moment. Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. Okay, final segment. Let's sneak in a few questions from Twitter. Uh, I saw a few people asking this. Ken Anderson, 82, one of them, asking why I and others were in a fire suit on the broadcast. Is it a different protocol than IndyCar? It's because we go over the wall. We don't have to wear a fire suit to be on pit lane, but we literally are next to the cars. I shot a video at one point of a car peeling out right in front of me when we were during a commercial. Maybe I'll post that on social media at some point. Kurt St. Angelo asked, GTP cars look similar to LMP2. How do the drivers distinguish the two? So at night, there's a different colored headlight for the Pro-Am cars. So it's more of a yellow or amber light for LMP2. But mostly, GTPs are a lot faster. And the spotters help them with that as well. So the people that understand it can kind of tell the difference. But I get it. They do look very similar to uh, many of us. Uh, also, Brett asks, has IndyCar tried recently to get merch into big box stores? I often see NASCAR, F1, and even Formula E stuff at local stores, 
but never IndyCar. I'd love to be able to expose my son to items, uh, IndyCar, Lego, etc. I have to believe they're trying, and we've talked about this before. But the answer to your question is usually about money. So somebody probably wants money or it's about they think they can sell these NASCAR and F1 uh, merchandise more and make more money out of them. But yes, it would be super helpful. What else we missed? I saw Nate Ryan on social media mention Scott McLaughlin drove over eight hours. I talked about people doing almost eight hours. Didn't mention Hinch. Hinch and Rossi had mechanicals, but they were fast. I think I saw Hinch was the fastest of the group, but just barely. All four were almost exactly the same. Good stuff. We'll see you next Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. Trackside 93.5107.5 The Fan.